You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. When we talk about killers, there are always words and statements that seem to float around the killers themselves. Things like psychopath, sociopath, abuse, escalation of crimes, lack of emotion, and so on and so forth. However, if you are into the psychology of true crime, you're very well aware of the fact that we barely know what makes a killer tick, and we barely know what causes someone to one day change and change everything in their mind enough that they're capable of taking another life. For every pattern, there are outliers. For every diagnosis, there are people who are undiagnosed or undiagnosable. We really do not know what it is within someone that makes them A. capable of being a killer, and B. capable of the actual killing. This week, we're going to look at a young man who made a 911 call after he murdered his mom and one of his sisters. In that call, he had no emotion. He knew what he had done and seemingly knew where he was headed. It is chilling to hear the voice of someone who had just taken the lives of two members of his family. This case will chill you to your bones. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 89 of Gone But Never Forgotten, influenced by a movie, The Murders of Jamie and Mallory Evans. Family is a word that takes on so many different shapes and forms all over the world. There are so many different family units that I couldn't possibly pay homage to all of them. Growing up, I knew that I was lucky. My mom and my dad were still together, and I lived with them, my two brothers, and my paternal grandparents. Our family was all together, which was something that was becoming more and more rare back then, and is even more rare today. Even though my family life was difficult on many levels and strained in many ways, in the back of my mind I knew that I was lucky to have what I had. I could talk forever about how important family is, and I think that most people know it, so I will leave it at that. This week, we're talking about a young man who seemingly wasn't trouble, nor was he visually on a path to trouble that anyone could see, which is what I alluded to in the intro for this week's episode. 
for every killer that we can see a pattern emerging or we can see familial trouble in their past, we think that we may be starting to develop an idea of what a serial killer looks like, acts like, and lives like. But for every case like those, there is a case like this one. Jake Evans was a 17-year-old boy who had recently been through some changes within his life, but for the most part, to everyone that was around him, he seemed to be okay. Friends, other kids at his former school, neighbors, and really everyone that knew Jake or knew of Jake said that nobody could have ever seen his crimes coming because he appeared to everyone to be a kind and caring young man who was... Certainly shy, but didn't appear in any way to be the monster that he showed himself to be. He enjoyed golf and appeared to be calm, cool, and collected. As mentioned, there have been some recent changes in Jake's life before the incidents we're going to talk about. He and his younger sister Mallory had recently been pulled out of high school at Alito High School in Alito, Texas, for Jake in January of 2012, and the family had recently stopped attending a Methodist church in town in order to start attending a Catholic church. I did look around to see if I could find out why Jake and Mallory were switched from public school to homeschooling, but unfortunately I did come up empty. The Evans family was certainly what we would call upper middle to upper class. They lived in a well-to-do, gated community in Alito, Texas, in a very nice home. They lived across the street from their grandparents, and it seemed that the entire family was very close. For the week that led up to his crimes, Jake would later admit that he watched the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween three times, and we will get more into that later. On the night of October 4th, 2012, something changed inside of Jake that seemingly nobody saw coming. Jake would become known worldwide for a 911 call that he would make himself. Monster County 911, where is your emergency? Uh, my house. What's the address? 152 River Creek Lane. Okay, what's the emergency? Uh, I just killed my mom and my sister. What? I just killed my mom and my sister. You just killed your mother and your sister? How did you do that? Uh, I shot him with a uh, twenty-two revolver. And what is your name? Jay Evans. Jay Evans? Jake Evans. Are you sure they're dead? Yes. The call would then go on with the operator, who would start to gather information from Jake about himself. She asked if he was on medication, where the gun was, how old he was, if he regularly saw any doctors, and things of that nature. Through all of that, Jake was completely calm and seemingly unemotional. Jake would then relay that he had been planning to kill for a while now, and when the operator asked him if he meant his mom and his sister specifically, he responded by saying that he just wanted to kill people because he didn't like people or their attitudes very much. 
He also would say that he felt as though his family was suffocating him. Jake then relayed what had happened inside of his home. No, uh, uh, this, this is really gonna mess me up for the, you know, in the future, uh, see my sister, I told my sister that my mom needed her, mm-hmm. she was in her room, and she came out of her room, and, uh, I, I shot her, and she rolled down the stairs, and I shot her again, and then I went down and I shot my mom about maybe three or four times, but I'll never forget this. Uh, okay, that's fine. My, my uh, sister, she, she came down the stairs and she was screaming and I was telling her that I'm sorry, but to just hold still, mm-hmm. that, you know, I was just going to make it go away, you know, but she just kept on freaking out. But finally she fell down and I shot her in the head about... Probably three times. So they're both downstairs? Uh, yes. The call continues with this operator, who seriously needs to be commended for doing an incredible job, attempting to keep Jake calm and collecting information while Jake is seemingly in some state of shock. Jake relays that he is afraid of guns now and that he did not enjoy killing and was worried for himself about his mental health and nightmares moving forward. On first blush, I did feel like Jake sounded emotionless here, in a callous way, but I do think that he was most certainly in some state of shock. As Jake sat there in silence between the questions that the operator asked him, you could certainly see that the gravity of the situation was slowly setting in on him along with asking that nobody allow his family members to come see him when he was in custody, he would start to realize more that this situation was going to mess him up than realize what he had actually done. His reaction here really can go one of two ways. You can either see the narcissism, or you can see the shock and reality sinking in. You'll be all right, Jake. Okay, you'll be all right. I'm, I'm like really worried about like, you know, like nightmares and stuff like that. Um, are, are there any type of medication for that and stuff? Well, I I think there is. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but you know, um, the the justice system, and I'm sure your family I mean, will uh, get you yeah, the support you need. I don't mean to sound like a wimp or anything, but you know, this is. <laughs> wow. I've never, like, done anything violent in my whole life, you know? You don't sound like a violent person. No, you don't. From there, the operator tells Jake to put the phone down and to walk out the front door with his hands in the air, and that is precisely what happened. As officers attended the scene, they would find Jake in the front of his home with his hands up above his head. Jake would be taken into custody and charged with two counts of murder and one count of capital murder and denied bail for the murders of 48-year-old Jamie Evans and 15-year-old Mallory Evans. 
Once in custody, investigators were able to get Jake to admit to everything that happened, and Jake also willingly gave a written confession to investigators detailing everything. Jake said that he had earlier in the day watched Halloween by Rob Zombie for the third time that week, and he remembered being astonished that the boy in the movie had been so calm and collected while he killed his stepfather, sister, and his sister's boyfriend. And he said that he remembered thinking to himself that he would be that cool and that collected if he were to kill someone. He said that when he finished the movie, he put it back into its case and threw it in the garbage so that nobody would blame the movie when he committed the murders that he was planning. Jake said that he then went out into the yard and started to hit golf balls until about 5.30 p.m., when he returned to the living room to think to himself and make plans about killing his family. He said that his plan was to first kill his mom and his sister, who were inside of the home with him, and then he would head across the street to kill his grandparents and his oldest sister, who lived with them. Finally, he intended to wait at his house until the following day, when his other sister was due to come home from school for a visit, and he intended to kill her as well. He laid out that earlier in the day he had gone to the allergist with his sister, and the two of them had got into an argument because she had made a racist comment, and Jake had scolded her and told her that she was becoming white trash. Later in the day, she had asked him if he wanted to watch a movie with her, and he declined, opting instead to go into the basement to get his father's knife. His initial plan was to stab Mallory to death, but as he paced outside of her room, he started to realize that while he wanted to kill her, he didn't want to cause her pain. The thought of hurting his family bothered him, but not the thought of killing them. Jake said that he started to think about all of the times that Mallory had pissed him off, though, and he still did want to kill her. He sat with Mallory for a while, and then the two started to have a pillow fight. While they were pillow fighting with the knife in his pocket, Jake realized that he did not want to stab Mallory at all. He didn't want anyone that he killed to feel anything. So, instead Jake went into his closet in his bedroom to get the twenty-two caliber gun that he had stolen from his grandfather. Jake said that he sat on his bed for a long time, opening and closing the cylinder. He then said that he paced around the house for about an hour, thinking about how his life would never be the same and he would never see his family again, seemingly arguing with himself about what to do. In the end, though, Jake could not resist the urge that he had at this point to kill people. Jake then devised his plan. He went to his sister's bedroom door and knocked on it, telling Mallory that their mom wanted to talk to her. Jake said that when Mallory came out, he saw she saw Jake pointing the gun at her, and she thought that he was joking around, but said that Jake was freaking her out. Jake said that he then shot her in the back and the back of the head. Jake said that after he did that, he immediately ran to the study where his mom was, and he shot her three times in the head as well. While he was in the study, Mallory fell down the stairs of the home. 
Jake said that he was instantly in shock and that he ran to his room and started to yell and scream at himself. He said that he knew and he yelled that he had really messed up and he killed his mom and his sister. He said that he then took the rest of the shells out of the gun because he knew that he couldn't kill anyone else. But he then heard a noise and he realized that Mallory was still alive. He then reloaded the gun, ran back to Mallory, and shot her again in the head to ensure that she was dead while he screamed, I'm sorry, at her. He then said that he ran back to the study again and shot his mom in the head another time to ensure that she too was completely dead. He said that after that he had walked around outside for a while and then went back into the house put the still-loaded gun in the kitchen, and eventually called 911. Jake wrote that people in our world are terrible. He said that people, especially teenagers, were cruel to one another, and that the world was filled with racists, bullies, and people who are full of themselves. He said that he felt like his own family was turning into those kinds of people. He closed his statement by saying that he knew that he would never kill again because murder was the most dreadful and terrifying thing that he would ever experience in his life. He wrote that what happened in his home the night before would haunt him forever. Even with the 911 call and the written confession, there was a long wait in this case. Two and a half years, in fact. First, there was the issue of the capital murder charge. In Texas, as we've covered in the past, a capital murder charge could only be sentenced with a death penalty or with life imprisonment. However, at the time of the murders, Jake was 17, so that raised many issues. The United States Supreme Court had ruled that it was unconstitutional to charge Jake with capital murder because of his age. Changes would come to that law over the two and a half years, but ultimately nobody knew if the charge would carry in court. On top of that, the court also fought back and forth on whether or not Jake was even fit to stand trial because of his mental health. Two psychologists had determined that Jake was incompetent to stand trial, and he was placed into the care of a state mental health hospital. On April 20th of 2015, though, officials at the hospital would notify the courts that Jake was now competent to stand trial, and a judge restored his competency in the system and asked him if he understood the agreement that he was entering into with the state regarding his plea. That agreement was that the capital murder charge would be removed from the charges against Jake, and in return for a guilty plea, he would receive 45 years for each murder that would be served concurrently. He would also be eligible for parole in half of that time, so 22 and a half years, and he would be credited with two and a half years for the time that he was in custody at the mental health hospital. Jake's family, for their part, actually agreed to and tried to petition for a shorter sentence for Jake, but they said that they appreciated the deal that got rid of the capital murder charge and the trial that that capital murder trial would bring. 
Jake's attorney would say that Jake's family supported the lesser sentence because everyone knew that a capital murder trial would be much more painful and much more drawn out for everyone involved. The family also had the belief that they had already lost two members of their family and they didn't want to be a part of a trial that would likely finish Jake's life as well, in one way or another. The family would release a statement saying, quote, We wish to close this chapter of our lives in order to continue healing as a family, unquote. Parker County Assistant District Attorney Robert Dubois would say that he was blown away and in awe of the Evans family and their ability to forgive and move on under the circumstances. For me, I think that this makes the story even sadder, to be honest. Jake obviously had some kind of issues that had gone undiagnosed prior to these two murders, but he also had a family that still was looking out for what was best for him, even after he had taken two lives. Obviously, we don't know for sure what the family is like, but it sure seems to me that there is a lot of love and compassion if the rest of the family can stand up and fight for a less heavy hand against someone that took two people from their family, even if that person is also family. In the end, Jake Evans will be eligible for parole around the year 2035 and around the age of 40. The sentence was made official on April 30th, 2015. These cases are always extra emotional, I think. I would certainly say that, thankfully, a child killing their family is not common, but when it happens, it certainly raises the hair on the back of your neck. If you want to hear the 911 call that Jake made in full, you can easily find that on various places on the internet. If you go to listen, or have heard it before, let me know what you think. Do you get the feeling that Jake was a young man that was suffering from being in shock when he called 911? Was that a young man who couldn't comprehend what he had done, and a young man who didn't understand what murder was before he committed it? Did he just have a mental break that caused his deepest, darkest thoughts to come to the surface? Or, on the flip side of that, was this a young man who was calmly describing everything that he had done with no emotion whatsoever? Is this a man that sounds psychopathological and who doesn't have any emotional response whatsoever to what he had done? Personally, like I said earlier, I think that both arguments have merit, so I would love to have this conversation with you goners online and see where other people stand. Also, how does this make you feel when a family stands up, whether the killer is their relative or not, and argues for a shorter sentence? Does that inspire awe for you, or does it incite you? Do you believe that a 17-year-old who kills two family members deserves to even have a shot at seeing the outside of a prison again with help, assistance, and growth? Or do you believe that he should face a life sentence or the death penalty for what he did? This is a shorter, open and closed case, but certainly one that I wanted to cover because I believe there is a lot of debate that can be had here. 
I think that it certainly brings to light a lot of arguments that are caused in today's judicial systems. Death penalty versus no death penalty. Age of criminal restrictions on charges and sentences. Plea deals. Mental health issues being used to prevent trials. Those and so much more. So, come on over to my socials. Come on over to Patreon and support the show while talking about the true crime that we cover here. And spread the word and help by posting, sharing, and sharing your opinions alongside me. Aside from that, I hope that this next week finds you well and that you and yours are enjoying life. Don't forget to come back here next week for another dose of true crime, our 90th episode. And until then, be happy. Be safe, and of course, most of all, be better.